Today is a super special episode. In fact, every episode is super special, but this one is even more special because these are my dear friends, and I'm going to see them like multiple times a week, every week, for the rest of my life, God willing, you know? So I did uh, the Rick intro, and then I have some super fans. So number one, thank you to everybody who is listening. It started out as a passion project. I was like, man, I could do this. All my friends are so interesting. They're such interesting people. I need to highlight them. People need to know these stories. People need to know these stories, man. Because I'm sick of celebrities, man. They're just not nearly as interesting as musicians. I became a musician just so I could hang out with interesting people. Anyway, so really my numbers have been shocking. These little, like my little pod bean app. I'm like, that many people listen to that? No way. I was hoping for like seven. There's many multiples of that. So number one, thank you. That means number two, now that I have super fans, for the Rick intro, a few of my super fans were like, yeah, man, that, you know, the Rick intro just, it wasn't as good as the Pete one or the Greg one. And that honestly really messed with my head. This messed with my head. Three different people, I was like, all right, I have to bring it. I have to bring it for Chris and Rebecca. I have to bring the so ham sandwich. The intro is so important. Because these are my dear friends. So this is the ninth take. This is the ninth time I've tried to record an intro in full disclosure. And I record it. I stop it. I say, I hate you, machine. I turn it off. I delete the track. I don't even listen back to it. Probably be smart to listen back to it. But I just delete it. Because I have to be in this prime... Oh, headphone, headphone jack. You have to be in this prime headspace to do this. Because like, as a performer, when I have a show... Or any, any, any show where I'm fronting or have to talk. As a sideman, it's much more relaxed. You just have to have the music together and show up on time and be cool. But if you're like the face and you're fronting, then it's like full pressure on. You're like, I have to make these people laugh. I have to make them cry. I have to be interesting. You have to tell them something cool. So, But at a live show, for a live show, I can just think about it like a little bit during the day. And then I'm good to go. And I write little notes on my set list like, oh, make this joke about... Chris Anderson's drinking habit or something because he's on a tequila cleanse. But <clears throat> for this, this feels a little more pressure because you're not really at a bar. And this, why? Anyway, so the story I've been thinking about that I think relates is that I had an eighth grade student this week. He's a male. He's like an emotionally mature, mature cat. And I was like, he came late to the lesson. His babysitter didn't know how to get there, and he told me his parents are away. And I was like, oh, your parents are away. That's awesome. Are you going to party? Are you going to rage? Are you going to have all your friends over? Are you going to do juvenile and delinquent stuff? Like, I don't know. And he, I was like, he looked at me like, what? It's, it's just not even an option. I was like, what? Because when I was in eighth grade, if we were dog-sitting a friend's house and that family happened to go on vacation, all of my crew would meet up and, like, demolish a bottle of Yukon Jack, smoke multiple packs of cigarettes, and then roll into the, you know, the girls' varsity basketball game at 7 o'clock, like, hooting and hollering, like, it's fully on. This is in eighth grade. That sounds probably horrible. Now, this, is, this kid looked at me like, what? 
Oh, and then it made me think of that Black Mirror. Jodie Foster directed the Archangel episode. I'm like, that's really going on now. That's real life right now. Oh, poor little dude. I'm like, dude, you got to become free. You got to get free. You need to become free. So in the quest for freedom, when I first transferred to SUNY Purchase, I was in a classroom with Rebecca Havlin, Jenny O, and Shira Goldberg. And we talk about this. And Rebecca Havlin has haunted me with these stories. She's, she sees my weakness, man. She comes at me. I get new friends. I'm like, hey, new friends. Here's my friend Rebecca. And Rebecca's like, yo, when I met this dork, man, he had wore all black and a buzz cut. And he was a jabroni. And, and Rebecca crushes me. And she even tells the story at the end of this podcast. I was like, oh, Rebecca, you're such a crusher. But I love her dearly. And my whole, like, I can't imagine living in New York without Rebecca around. She's uh, just a complete professional in every sense of the word. And just immense amounts of raw talent. She's hilarious. She can crush all the things. Rebecca Allen, I love her. And she's a sweetheart. And she cooks, and she sings, and she plays. She does everything. And she writes songs. She has this new record coming out. I think it's going to be sick. In fact, I've heard it, so I, I know it's sick. And then there's my dude, Chris Anderson, bass player extraordinaire, songwriter. In fact, a lot of uh, my songwriting has actually been influenced by Chris. Many years ago, for a Thang record called Bonafide, I wrote a, a song called What's Your Monkey, which is directly taken from a Chris Anderson story. Then a couple years later... We wrote some lyrics together for a song called Is It Cheating If? And it just started out as a game, like, is it cheating if? Blah, blah, blah. And it's probably, it's a controversial song. <clears throat> Clearly, we only performed it twice. I was like, this is too much. This tweaks people out too much. People are not ready for this kind of future shock. That's right. That's what kind of artistry you're dealing with here. Future shock. Anyway, Chris is the damn dude, and he's from Upstate, and I like that. He wears that as a point of pride. And I think that when he was in eighth grade, I'm sure and absolutely positive when his parents went away, he's like, everybody come over, we're going to rage. Pre-phone life, baby. <sighs> Good on you, brother. Anyway, he's a dear friend. They're dear friends. They're two of the sweetest. And I think that's some, something people were like, man, I don't know, I don't think they like me. And I'm like, no, they probably don't like you because you're probably not cool. But no, that was way harsh. But... They're so sweet that I think I could lucky Pierre them. Like, I would be like, guys, I'm going to sleep over. I'm going to sleep in between you two tonight. I'm going to be the lucky Pierre of you guys. And they might be like, okay, that'll be fine. That'll be great. Cool. Sleep right there. Anyway, I'm going to play you guys out and into the hang at their cool, cool house with Bright City Lights, the first single that came out in November. I think I tracked this with them maybe in October. So, you know, there's a whole delay. Come on, all right? Get off me, man. Come on. We're, we're, this is, I'm doing this for fun. So this track is badass, and it's the first single off their new record, which will be coming out this spring. So enjoy it, rock it, let it set you in the tone, and enjoy the hilarity of a married couple that makes music together, the subtle points of their conversation are just it's priceless rock and roll y'all enjoy
Kittens, I'm hanging out with the best, two of the coolest, Rebecca Havlin and Chris Anderson, singers, songwriters, multi-instrumentalists, educators. Chris kind of just plays bass. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> true. It's totally true. Sure, that was definitely more for you, of course. Thanks. Educators. That was the last one. And I mean, I heard you the first home. time on it, but thanks for twice. <laughs> Do you know how often I listen back and I'm like, damn, I'm such an idiot. So that will be the moment. <clears throat> right there. We love okay. you, Polly. 
We love you, Polly. Love you guys. It's so wonderful to be here. I'm in their home, the Creation Station. Do you guys write music like right here at the kitchen table? I do. Sometimes. Sure. Yeah, I mostly work in the back room where all the bases are. Sure. You have your Chris own space now. now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I mean, creative stuff happens there. The kitchen is your room then. That's what Every you're other room is my room except that room. Basically. Except for the base room. That's how it works when you're married. Like. There's yeah. the room that is the husband room, and then the rest of the rooms are the wife room. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I'll but then Chris gets the whole basement. I'll be clear. I put a number of Rebecca's guitars and her Fender Rhodes back in that room, <laughs> just saying, like, hey, you're welcome to come back here. <laughs> this is a room to make. And, and she doesn't indulge in that. So Sometimes. Well, this whole house is clearly geared for music. We have how many keyboards in the living room? There and then you three. have three keyboards in the living room where you're doing recitals. Yes, I am. We have the Chris bass store in the back. In and the then bass layer. And then you have a whole rehearsal space downstairs. And then a instrument fixing station. Paul also makes it, Paul makes it sound wonderful. The rehearsal space downstairs is just an unfinished basement that has enough stuff in it to rehearse. Yeah. But anyone living in like an urban center completely <laughs> understands a rehearsal space. Re has a rehearsal space. Yeah. You have all this right here. This is like the music zone. When is it just going to become like a studio? Well, Once we drill a is. hole through the floor and yeah. some XLRs through it, yeah. <laughs> it's better tape we're done. Sheet. We're just getting there. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. getting there. If Apogee wants to send me some stuff, I can Actually, do that tomorrow. brings up a good story. <laughs> when, we were, when we were on tour uh, with uh, She Who Will Not Be Named. Okay. Maybe. Um, the front of house guy. So we all like, you know, we all stockpiled our money from tour and, uh, Chris and I kept talking about how we wanted to buy a house and we were looking at buying something and buying a piece of property. And so, uh, we got off tour and, and we buy this house and we call up the front of house guy and we're like, dude, we just bought a house. We're so excited. And he's like, you're not going to believe what I just did. And I was like, what'd you just do Monty? And he goes, I just spent all my Rachel Platten money and bought a board that I can't fit in my apartment. <laughs> he bought this huge, like, like how many channels? Like how oh, he bought a massive, like mixing, a massive console. old school mixing console tens, that he tens had of to thousands send. Of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Tens, tens like, of thousands like down of payment for a house. Yes. We love you, Monty. Which yeah. he bought instead and spent on this board that he couldn't fit in that, his apartment. Yeah, he couldn't in fit it in his apartment and they had to ship it to, to his, uh, his fiance's parents' yeah, house in Pennsylvania. in Pennsylvania. And then it had to get <laughs> shipped to California when he moved. Yep. Did so, he move you know. right after that tour? Right? Because now he's Mr. LA guy. He's Mr. LA guy now. Yeah. So we jumped off tour and then he was on for a little while and he was doing some really fun stuff like subletting his apartment. Yes. Um... And kind of got boring though. I mean, he got kind of got caught, but he then got busted subletting an apartment. Every New Yorker's <clears throat> done that. That's yeah, it happens. You can get really good money. If you're gonna go so. with the she who'd remain nameless thing. You shouldn't say her name <laughs> a few sentences later. Well, <laughs> that's what I said. Maybe, maybe. after. Sure. Okay. So. Anyways, maybe Polly will edit that out. We'll see. Maybe not. Maybe he won't edit us talking about editing it out either. So. Um. So that brings up, I mean, this is already perfect stuff because <laughs> I think we jumped in a little fast. It's great. No, we're in. It just we're, segued we're, really we're, well. So yeah, it's perfect. We, you it's know, a perfect story. What, I'm glad to be here with you, Polly. Yeah. I, I don't understand. What is this thing called? 
Well, I don't usually tell people the name until after I record it, but it is called Secret Famous. All right. Which you guys are more than secret famous. You guys are like known famous. You're famous famous. Like people know, I know who you guys are. We're known famous. That's kind of you. I That's still kind feel of very you. secret. We appreciate famous, that. I mean, thank you. But it's like the people behind the people who are more interesting than the actual people. Who you know? That's what. <laughs> I concur. That's what I kind of think it is, right? Like, well, I concur. You guys I, I are, think that I think that's. I don't know. I mean, like whether or not. <laughs> I think it's a great concept. <laughs> Just gonna go. I think it's a great concept. So you guys are on tour with a super pop star. You're married. This is fresh in the marriage too, right? This is. So we got married August fifth of twenty fifteen, and I, we got back from our honeymoon. Um. And I got a text asking if I could learn a whole bunch of tunes and go out to L.A. the first week of September. And I was supposed to go out the 19th. Um, and it was just me. And three days before I left for tour, they decided that they wanted to see if they could get a budget approved for a bass player. So Chris got pulled out 48 with me, hours notice. like literally on 48 hours notice. 48 hours. <clears throat> So we had just flying to LA. Married. You're learning the tunes in the. Well, I, I, I showed up. Yeah. I showed up for a week of rehearsals, and they were saying like TV dates, and they were like, "Well, we'll need you for TV dates." And I was like, "Cool, you know, everything was everything was okay with rehearsals and the schedule. Mm-hmm. I only had to move a couple things." And then, um, yeah, and then I just went out, and I was like, "Well, I kind of know the stuff." Yeah, and then <laughs> you know. But fresh into marriage. Endured, sure. endured. Is, yeah, yeah is, fresh into marriage for sure. We learned a lot. You're on the yeah, road, right? Yeah. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> like we what's something lot. you learned? What, what well, when what you did first we learn, get Chris? married? I like what, to let when, Chris answer yeah. this. When question. you're on when you're on the same job, it's it's interesting, and this is totally. I mean, this we can throw this in the couples counseling bucket. Um, when you're on the same job, um, you don't have each other as a different sounding board. So what I learned actually, my dad explained it to me because apparently mm-hmm. within the first couple of years of marriage. My mother turned to my dad one day when he came home from work and she just said, so you're never going to talk about work when you come home anymore. And my dad was like, what? And she was like, that's just not going to fly. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah. so I talked to my dad, we, we kind of had a chat about it. And because Rebecca and I were on the, working the same job, it's, it's hard because, well, everyone, it's the parlance of the times, but everyone keeps using this phrase echo chamber, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. with, with regard to politics and we don't need to get into that, but when you're on the same job, you become an echo chamber. So like if something just bugged you and you were bummed about it, instead of calling someone who's home a thousand miles away and being like, well, it bummed me out when this happened, or it was really exciting when this happened, that person can either be like, that sounds great. Or they can be like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's not yeah. that big a deal. But when you're but both then you on get the off same the phone job, and you don't have to talk about it anymore. And when yes. you're both in the same job, it's like, there's always opportunity. I mean, not always, but like, when you have alone time, there's always opportunity to talk about things that are bothering you that are business related. And so it's very difficult to find a division between personal time and business time. And so it yeah. took us a little while to really sort that yeah, out. That echo chamber yeah. can but sort once of keep we, ringing. Once yes, we figured is... out that that was something, because we had never, we hadn't been on tour together since we toured with Evan Watson. And when we toured with Evan Watson. Which is how many years before the Rachel Brown before thing. we were seeing each other. So it was... Yeah, we were like, many, you know, like six or seven years, six or seven before, years before, maybe even eight years. And I wish I was every time I listen to a podcast, <clears throat> I wish that I was better at dates. There are people in podcasts yeah. that are like, Well, they that was it. 2010. That's what you got me for. And this Rick is, is killing the well, date. Did game, you know really. the date of that one? When were we with Evan? We were with Evan in 20, 
10 or 11, somewhere around there. I think Bonnaroo was 09 for Evan. Yeah, so we were still with him in 2010. Okay. I'm doing all right. <laughs> but, so, but we weren't together, and all of those were one-offs. And so the difference is when you're doing dates where you're out, so you're traveling, you're exhausted because you're doing red eyes. So everyone's super cranky when you have to get up at 3.30 in the morning and get in a car service to go to the airport. This is, this is for no the Rachel sleep. tour? This is for the Rachel stuff. Yeah. Like, and we were doing flyouts, grueling but touring. grueling touring. And it wasn't like we weren't on a bus until six months in on her game. And then we were only on the bus for four And then we were weeks. only on the bus for, for I think it was almost I could have gone. I could have gone two years on the bus. So you're exhausted and you're around each other all the time. And you're, you're aggravated about things that might not be going well business-wise. And your only person to vent to happens to be the other person who you're working with. And so who's going through the same who's conditions. Who's going through the same conditions. Going through the same. And, and trying to have patience. But also trying to remember that hey, we're in a relationship together. Yeah, we well, need to be. Co- we can cut to it cathartic real quick. So, so, so we started to just a timer. Yeah, it'd be like you get you get two minutes, I get two minutes, and then after this, we're going to go eat some sushi. You yeah. have to talk about something different, right? The conversation. Just, we have to we be just in have to vent for yeah. a few minutes, and then we have to get back. You know, because the whole and thing. Literally, yeah. the time you chose is two minutes. No, That's sometimes it'd like, be oh, a couple minutes. Oh, there, I was going to say two minutes seems so fast. That's like. <gasps> But sometimes you. that's what it. All right. But it's not. That's it all wasn't, it takes, though. Sometimes it wasn't yeah. necessarily at each. I mean, we we weren't aggravated with each other. Oh, you're really not mad with each often. other, but it it's aggravation about what we were dealing with. Mm. But then getting aggravated because we couldn't be but, in a relationship as fast in those moments as we wanted to be. You know. It, it yes. should also be noted that like the work, and the workload and the conditions, they start as what you hope for. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then they end up somewhere different. And part of being an adult is realizing like where those differences are and renegotiating or resettling or reframing your expectations. And that taught us a lot in our relationship, but then also a lot in the business of the music. Yeah. Mm. So you guys would just do a timer for two minutes? You maybe had your father just yell at each to other? yell at? Did you, you have someone outside of this bubble to kind of be really. a sounding board? I mean, I've always talked to my parents about it, but I think, and Chris had a similar view with his dad. Like, it's difficult to try and relate people. People in the business world think that they can relate to you as a musician because they're like, hey, it's business, business is business. But it's not. There's There aren't, and not that all businesses have loyalties. Like, my dad just got laid off after 40 years of mm-hmm. being at the same job and being loyal. But, you know, you're you're not in the same world. There aren't the same formalities and the same relationship concepts there as aren't are even in the contracts. business world. Yeah. Like like the way that we dealt with contracts and some of the trivialness that we had to deal with, with even having our own lawyer and how that was like a shocking moment when we were you negotiating to, contracts. You had a lawyer up to go well, up we to. Just, I, yeah. I had well, always been taught that check. you have a lawyer read a contract. and so it. But it came as a surprise when well, all of a sudden I was like, hey, my lawyer read the contract and we have a couple points we want to talk about. And they were like, well, why did you get a lawyer? That's very insulting to us. Don't you trust that we're going to do the right thing? And it's like, it's got nothing to do with trust. It's, it's like business. you got a lawyer and you sent yeah. a contract. Yeah. I got a lawyer and he read the contract. Yes. That's called being an adult or yeah. Yeah, or some veteran musicians who yeah. know that. But I mean, we've all done tours and stuff for years where we never saw a contract. Of course. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so it's just, it's a this, fringe. This was maybe a whole business. new level too though, right? Like totally. You guys, this was a different I mean, I, thing. you were yeah. riding the rocket ship to the top. Pop rockets. You know, pop I rockets. I call them pop, pop rockets. Rocket. Yeah, you were on the pop <laughs> I've rocket. Aboard, I've been aboard a couple. 
Chris has had a couple now. The, this is my first. So this is the first. Yeah. Month of your marriage, you're thrown into. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which which also at the same time too, yeah. like Who just else to, has this just story? To, but just to pull the brakes too. It's it's important to remember that everything you hoped and dreamed for as a musician is actually there in that moment. It's right there. How it pans out, who knows? It's different. But you've got to remember, too, like, I always jokingly, when I want to be, like, super snide, I'll say, and if you're lucky, you'll work for a person that horrible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because this business is, like, it's just about, it's about dealing with those situations and managing those expectations. And I have been awful at it. And there are times there are times when I've been okay at it, you know. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. No one. I mean, like maybe yeah. on the face of Earth, there's only like twenty people who can even relate to this story, right? Like, yeah, was, we should cover some other material. The, th- the thing is, like, <laughs> yes, we, we will. Yeah, I mean, the it's also not something that's. You know, it's it's funny, like, we know other people who have had similar experiences in in very similar situations, but, you know, the thing is, you're not... June and Johnny Cash? Is that who you use as an example, sure. maybe? I don't know. <laughs> who do you study from, you know? Well, but you're not going to go and... You're not going to go and, and talk shit about people, you know... There are always positives about what happened and positives totally. about the experiences and the opportunity we got and the fact that, you know, we got to do what we did and, and bought a house after the fact, you know, yeah. like there are some really yeah, awesome but things. We should we should talk about we should talk about the way to the way to sidestep that and keep it a business like. Yeah, I mean, it's the very thing easy with us- to say it's very easy to say that that one one stint 10 months out of a year with a successful act yeah. bought us a house, but that's not That's not true the truth. The truth is all. that the reason that we were also super stressed out was And it didn't buy us a house. It afforded it us afforded a down payment. It afforded us a down payment. But, but, you but know, we were you also flying home on every red eye we could to keep our college teaching gig. Yes, you had a very important job to come home so, to. So we, but on top of that, we were also flying home for that gig. And we were flying home anytime we had a day off we were having them fly us home so we could still make money on days off. Yeah. So we yeah. weren't taking a day off ever ever for the whole year we were out. And so that's that's a big difference, I think, for what we did well, to other a, people who were in a similar situation well, maybe. But. It's a work ethic thing. This one tour manager that I work with cracked me up because he said, you know, when when you pack your bags and you get in the bus or you get on the plane, you're not going on fun you're going on tour. You're going yeah. to work. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's the, the, the business itself can be such a safe haven for misfits. And it's got like, we, we had a running joke on the road where if you misbehaved, they were going to call HR. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it would be like, it would be something ridiculous. It would be like, call HR. So-and-so ran down the hallway of the hotel without a shirt on. You know what I mean? And it's like, there's no HR. There's no rules, yeah. which which on one hand, as a musician, you can view as like a, oh, wow, that's fascinating because I can be myself. But on the other hand, you can view it as like, wow, maybe nobody's looking out for me. And maybe there is no contract and maybe, you know what I mean? Mm. Or maybe every time the wrong promo photo shows up and the major label is billing exorbitant amounts of money, you go like, well, which intern is that getting pawned off on? And who's doing a job? Because I know when the downbeat happens, the bass player here is getting it right. 
You're playing you know what music. I mean? Yeah. And <laughs> and I'm my salary is questioned. Yeah. You know what I mean? On the road, the a lot of those a lot of those finances are balanced on the back of a musician. Meanwhile, there's a tower of idiots somewhere sending well, the wrong press photos. Well, how many times photos. are we getting you know the mean? excuse like, well, they're recouping expenses? Yeah, and it's like, well, who's recouping my expenses when I'm not home in Did New York to work? Get this deep this <laughs> I'm not home to work. You know? No, it's great. It's good. This is a lot. This is a lot even for me sitting right here drinking <laughs> wine to process. You guys are taking it so serious. I love it. No, so, we're having a great time, dude. We're not too serious. How did yeah. that Happen. experience affect maybe the music you guys are making together now or how you go in and out of this new domestic? Did, should I the, talk about the on our terms thing? That was a big deal for me. The first time I was touring with a successful group and was having to like fight for my life for what would be equitable pay, I remember calling Rebecca and being like, and at, at that point in time, I was gone and you were home. I was home. So she was a sounding board for it. But I remember being like, this is exactly what I want, but I don't want it like this. I want it on my terms. Yeah. Like it was like, have, you start to realize that the music an, that you guys are writing. As an artist, yeah. And, you know, bass players are artists, too. Um, you start to realize, like, winning isn't it. Like, if you win just because you want to win. Evan Watson once famously said, anyone who wants to be famous will eventually end up famous. The question is, for what? And you love that. And that's an amazing <laughs> idea if you think about Chris it. Because loves right? pointing out the for what. It's exactly, it's amazing <clears throat> yeah. if you yeah. think about it. So I remember being like successful and touring the world and doing these things and just fighting the good fight for equal pay for musicians and, and wondering why our, our union lacked any representation in the pop world and things like that. And I just remember being like, oh, this is exactly what I want, but not on my terms. How do I get this on my terms? But you're not also you're not answering all of Paul's question. Like, how did it affect the way we write and what we're doing musically now? And I think, I think it, that we both got home. Like, one of the things that we started talking a lot about is like, okay, well, and and this was someone who someone who'd kind of we actually both agree on the same concept. But think of the gig that you want and surround yourself with the people who are at that level. Mm. Start hanging out with those people and and try to you know get in with that crew and start getting yourself on that next level of gigs and I think that's something that both of us really started to think more about like what are we doing musically we're not in our 20s anymore we don't have to take every gig that comes our way maybe yeah. we should be taking gigs that not only are, are maybe paying us you know something that's a little bit more worth you know what we're worth but also musically what we really want to be doing um and so I know for you, Chris, that ended up being a lot of what's happened since you got back from tour in, in 2016. The last year for you has been a lot of really taking gigs that are what you wanted to do musically that also end up being something that works out financially. For me, it was a different scenario because I'm also an artist and I'm making quotation marks while I'm saying that for Scare all quotes, yes. people out there. Um you know, I'm an artist, so for me, it's been this constant struggle over the years of like, when am I a sideman and when am I an artist? Because there's, they just don't intersect. Like the amount of times I was like, I'm gonna ride on the road while you're touring with another artist, it doesn't fucking happen. It the just lateral, does, does yeah. not happen. Lateral movement does not. It happen. It doesn't happen, and so 
it's always had to be a clear, like, okay, I am in artist mode now and this is what's happening. And so when I got back from that tour in 2016, I had a little bit of like a crisis in terms of really making some decisions on what I wanted to be doing. And, and I really hunkered down and was like, financially, I can afford to really be an artist and not have to take all these little gigs that I have a lot of fun doing, but distract me from writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I spent the last year writing my ass off and just being home and writing. And when Chris is on tour writing and, um, there was a lot of stuff too with what happened with the election and also the way I was treated on tour and the way I perceived a lot of the relationships and the expectations of female to female, which is a constant issue that, that I have because I'm constantly surrounded by guys. And so for me, I'm, you know, and I know this is true for a lot of other women, but like hanging out with, with dudes, things tends to be like, there's no grudge. It's like, I'm going to talk to you about what I need to talk to you about. We're going to get it out and then we're going to move on. And it doesn't work that way always when it's a bunch of women. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of silly. Um, I think and it's the, not a hundred percent the case. Well, no, in the, in the, I understand, so he's I understand what you're saying. Yeah. The, the, yes, the other flip side to that, the yes, but for me is, um, in the couple of tours I've done recently that were fantastic. We had female crews. And man, did that kick ass. Anytime I'm on the road now but, and I see female yeah. lighting design, female front of house, female monitor engineer, I'm, I'm always like, Sign good on you. But yeah. all Thank of you. them operate with that same. Appreciate and I should, it, the, my point is it shouldn't be a male female thing. It should just totally. be, no, of course we're not. in the music business and we're, we're able as humans <clears throat> to separate getting the business out from, you know, being it, having it being related in a personal way to how you feel about somebody and. And I don't think it should be divisible between male or female. It should just be people and how we treat each people other. People should be clear. And the fact that I saw a division based on sex was something that, for me, um, I, I really got very upset about. It kind of reminded me of like being at the lunch table when I was in like fourth grade. And because I was new, none of the girls wanted to hang out with me. Yeah. But all the dudes were like, come chill with us. Yeah. And that's And you've been kind hanging of, in a predominantly dude-heavy world for yeah. <laughs> What, 15, 20 <laughs> years now? Year, yeah, for a yeah, long like, time. So for me, inspirationally, that really affected the way I was writing. Um, and so a lot of my songs on the new record um, are about this sort of relationship with being on the road and, you know, being able to, you know, being the, being as a woman being on the road and my guy being at home, mm-hmm. which there's always songs written about the reverse of the that. The reverse of that. Um, you know, but then also, you know, being someone who has um, some old school, or you can call them old school, like like values and still being in a modern society while having those. Um, so there's, there's, it, so there's I, for me, it really affected what I ended up doing. The theme for the new record. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some stuff that's not in that direction. But, you know, for me, it was, I I started looking at what I do as a living from a different perspective. Um, And other people who do it. Um, I have a song written about Sharon Jones on the record that, you know, is just about her doing everything to do music up until the day that she died. And like, you know, there aren't a lot of women who you, in the music world that you can look at, who live their careers that way. 
Um, and she's one of them that I think is just universally amazing, whether she'd be a woman or a man, you know, mm-hmm. the way she treated her It's an amazing her positive. Yeah. It's an amazing positive. So. So, and it's like you guys are realizing your, this is manifest destiny here, right? You want to make choices. You're yeah. playing with artists you dig, AKA Martin Sexton. Yeah. Been doing Whiskey the Heart Sexton is tour. opening up for this more yeah, in line band. with what your band does and sounds like, yes. right? So, so it's leading in this way. I made a point earlier about lateral movement to, to jump mm-hmm. on Rebecca's point in that you're always hoping that it's, you can pick, you pick a side, right? You're either going to be light or dark on some topics. And, and the nepotism and the cronyism that I found in the pop world. You and your big fancy words. <laughs> well, <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> they were just exhausting. And it's like, you know, you, when you're out with a pop act, they write a song that gets them to be successful. And then the minute it comes out, the first thing the industry and the label does to them is they say, hey, that was great. Now we want you to write with these people. And they present all these co-writes, which is hysterical because they got to the hit song on their own. On their own dream. And the yeah. very yes. first now, thing that yeah. the business entity does is chips away at them and says, well, now you need to do this. And the irony to that, and I saw it twice successfully, which I'm grateful for, um, I saw it twice. The irony to that is that like, the only reason that exists is because those co-writes and those co-production credits all fill the pockets of somebody somewhere up the ladder in the business entity. Mm-hmm. They have nothing to do. The artist literally gets there on their own, of their own merits. And then the minute success happens, they're told to repeat this success, you need to do it differently, mm-hmm. which is really ironic. It is. Sure. You know, and, and um, oh God, the point I was going to make when I was talking about it is that like, you don't, you don't need to, you don't need to subscribe to any of that. And one of the wonders about like making my yes, my yes, and my no, my no, and like touring with people I want to tour with is like, you go out with an artist like Martin Sexton and Anything that he does or anyone he meets, he's happy to share. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's a wonderful thing. So for Whiskey Heart yeah. to go out on these dates is going to be great. Martin and his wife have already been incredible to us. They've said, oh, well, you should talk to so-and-so at this radio station or we can give you this. name." No one's protecting anything. They're sharing. He's very open, right? And community is why I got into music. And he also wants to mm-hmm. make music. Like the yeah. fact that he's... You know, he invited me to, you know, sing with him without even really knowing what we do musically was yeah. just because he, you know, wants to make music and trying that out and then really loving the way it feels and then giving, you know, us the opportunity to do that from an opening perspective is just amazing. And, yeah, you know, there, there are probably people in the pop world. It's not my personal experiences, which, which is why I have my viewpoint. There probably are people in the pop world who keep music more communal and participate like that or that inviting. It's just not my experience. I didn't see it that it's not, way. It's not what we've experienced. And yeah. that's not, not to say yeah. it's, it's representative yeah. of everything that's exactly. going on. Exactly. As a disclaimer for our conversation. <laughs> of course. So. Paul, how so are you? this new record coming out? <laughs> Um, singles out November 15th November 15th and the record's gonna come out in February we think um, it's an eight song EP I guess or 
I guess, I guess that's it's technically an, an LP. record. LP, I don't know what the words are anymore. No one knows. I don't think yeah. there's any rules. You just the hipsters don't even know that. No one even knows. The hipsters don't no even know does. that it's based on a wax record and what yeah. fits on a side. Yeah, it's all good. Well, yeah. maybe the hipsters do know that. <clears throat> True hipsters do know True that. True hipsters but, do know yeah. that. Who's gonna listen to this music? No one knows anymore. You know what I mean? I yeah. don't know. It's, you just kind of put it out there. Define. Are you gonna do the whole? Package the whole press, the whole. We're gonna do the whole thing. We're gonna do I the whole jam. I haven't ever worked with a publicist, and we're gonna do the publicist vibe this time. And I have a a guy who's uh, our manager, who's been very helpful. And I worked with a real producer on this record, which is also something I haven't done since my first record when I was eighteen. Um, and that was a big scary thing that ended up being really amazing. Um, so yeah, so it's. It's shaping up really nicely. We actually got the first or the final uh, mix for the last tune back tonight. Congratulations. So. We've listened through. We, and we did it a really fun way. Like, uh, you know, when you, when you work for a living, anything's a job. When you work for a living and you're making music a certain way and doing this and working for other people and doing that, like, like what I love about our thing, Whiskey Heart, is that like if we're going to make a record, we're going to put four people in a room and make a record. It's a real record. You know, we're, we're going to leave that day and be like, well... Well, it's actually funny because that's know. when I... So the yeah, first record I ever tracked when I was... I was 17 going into 18 um, was exactly that concept. And I was working with a, a producer named Peter Denberg who owned a really awesome studio in Ameranic called Acme Recording. And um, Peter and this guy, Joe Bonadio, who was the drummer for Martin Sexton for a little while, um, which is funny because that's Small kind of circle. Yep. Um, but Joe is an amazing drummer who's played for a lot of people. And so um, their whole thing was you just get the right guys and you put them in a room and you record them and that's going to make amazing music. And for me, doing my first record ever that way, it was completely a game changer and totally spoiled me um with everything because I just trusted everything they did and trusted the musicians and I don't think I felt that way until we tracked the last record a little bit but this record the most um was exactly the same for me it was a beautiful studio with a um 61 channel vintage Neve console um and two really awesome Tudor tape machines and some beautiful vintage gear and than the most awesome players that, you know, two of which, three of which we've had for a long time, Chris and mm-hmm. Todd and Kenny, um, and then Teddy Kumpel, mm-hmm. who played as well, and this amazing pedal steel player named Gerald Menke, and then Steven Salcedo, who's absolutely Who oversaw some horn arrangements. There's a few yeah. horn arrangements on the new record. Which is also very new for us, and, um, um, which is um, really exciting. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Jonathan Powell. JP. Yeah. JP. JP came in and played a little bit of flugelhorn, a little bit of trumpet. Yeah, so it it just for for us was really about having the right person in the room, but the production aspect ended up actually being a lot of helping to choose the songs, which is something I haven't done since my first record. Also, so you brought him a huge pile of songs, and yeah, he kind of helped whittle he it down. Helped whittle it down, and then also worked on the arrangements a little bit, mm-hmm. um, which I do all the time when I teach. That but is it's what you so do. Yes. hard to do with your own music because you live with these tunes and you hear them a certain way and. Um, you know, it's great to have that other perspective. And then when you're recording to have that person who's not in the room making the music, who can really oversee everything that's happening and be like, no, this take was money Mm -hmm. or, 
you know, this guitar track was amazing and her vocal in this line was so cool with this phrasing, like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need someone, you need someone to, to call it. You know yeah. what I mean? That's the whole thing, to call the plays. Yeah, yeah. No, like, I, like, guys, third take, really, trust me. And then you go in and you listen. And one of the, one of the things that was a blast, just to shout out, because I love Teddy Kumpel, um, it, that guy's a riot because he's so much fun to be around. And then, you know, he'll play nine takes and every bit is useful. Every <laughs> which single makes, take. Which yeah, makes, which makes a lot of work. Makes yeah. a lot of work when you're, when you're cycling through. You're going, oh, man. We don't need this much guitar, but it's all so good. You just no. can't listen to all of his takes because then you're like, I don't know what to uh, use. Yeah. I just love them all. And you know, to, and then so, and everything is completely different. And everything yeah. is completely different. No, that was our Every friend take. Kenny Shaw's takeaway from that whole session was Jenny Couples. <laughs> Fucking disgusting. That was all he said. I was like, how was it? How did it go? He's like, Daddy Gobble. Jesus Christ, dude. Like that's all he I talked like it, about. You know? In your brain, in your brain, oh Kenny Shaw God. sounds like he's like a, a pack a day, two pack a day truck driver. Well, he because he's, he's such a soft talker on the phone. But yeah. that's a whole Big shout outs though too, because Kenny Kenny Shaw, who Kenny whom I've spent down. probably the most oh, no, time sounds, playing with in life, yeah. sounded great. Yeah. Sounded fantastic. And Todd Caldwell, who's, you know, become very dear friend through the years and he's what's the name of this thing we're doing he's one he's of them he's truly like secret he's famous he's guy. secret famous no man. one knows who he is no nobody knows who he is except I was, for like five people yeah. and, by, before, <laughs> and Jackson before, Brown before we launch into nobody like knows. a Todd Caldwell sidebar he's the he's a B3 player uh, keyboard player if so you now watch, tell the Jackson Brown story oh my god I was in tour I was on tour this is this is secret famous this is an absolutely this, this secret absolutely famous it, story yeah. I was on tour a few years back with Burlap to Cashmere, which was a band that had some big hits in the 90s, and I still, on occasion, am, in, am their bass player. So Todd and I were out on the West Coast on this run, and we're at Umami Burger, which is like a funny little chain in the, in the, West, in the Coast West Coast area, in the L.A. area. And uh, we're sitting down for a hamburger, and the whole band's just there, and we're, we're a little bit road-rashed because we had done the whole drive, I think, from Portland the day before, or something like that. And... We're sitting down, we're eating, and we're having a couple of beers. And the tour manager goes, "You goes, you goes, you goes." Jackson Brown's across the street. <laughs> so we're like, "What? What do you mean?" And there's this vintage stereo shop like across the alley from where we're eating burgers, and it's Jackson Brown, man. Sure, <laughs> I swear to God, it's Jackson Brown. And uh, and we're all like, "Oh man, yeah, oh wow, that's Jackson Brown." And then all of a sudden, Jackson Brown looks through the glass and he sees Todd. He just starts waving, and we're like. Oh shit! Jackson Brown's Jackson waving, at, waving, at, <laughs> waving us. at us, and then he comes over and he like sits at the table. And he's like, "Hey, Todd, haven't seen you since that thing we did." And we're all just sitting there, like, "Oh my god!" Jackson Brown just sat down. I don't. I just met yeah. him. He's very nice. I don't know. <laughs> yes, you got hella starstruck by Jackson. Yeah, Brown. it was just really. It was and a Todd, funny moment. Todd's just playing it super easy. He's yeah, like, yeah, Todd man. is just Todd like, "Yeah, man, I worked with Jackson What's on up, the No Jackson? Nukes benefits," and yeah. I was like, "Oh, cool." Now I'll tell the story about the cool. ice cream cones. Well, Todd also, Todd's a, what we call a hedonist. <laughs> yes. And one time on tour, I think he ate six ice cream cones in one day. No, the number gets bigger every time. Well, it that's, was literally... It's storytelling, dear. Okay. <laughs> um, so the thing is that the drummer, uh, Teddy Pagano, and I were just cracking up because we're like kind of watching him. And we, we pulled off and it's like he walks into a McDonald's and he comes out with an ice cream cone. And we're like, oh, all right, all right. And then we pull off at another rest stop and he's got like an ice cream sandwich. It was just all day. He only ate ice cream cones. He's a he's a beautiful man. He really is. My he's a beautiful favorite man story. who enjoys one hundred percent of life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's full in. My favorite story about Todd, though, and and 
Well, I think he won't be mad if I share the story. But when Todd goes on tour, Todd needs to find weed. And when Todd finds weed and then he has to fly and he can't bring the weed on the airplane, Todd has a habit of taking the rest of what's left and lifting up the mattress to the hotel room and putting it underneath the mattress. Yeah. So if you're staying at any hotel room, <laughs> always check under the mattress. Look if Todd was the there before you, then you've got some really great weed. You might for you. you might receive some benefits. Yeah. Oh man, that's always like a zone I'm afraid to look under, right? You're like, I can't <laughs> No, well, you don't touch want anything. To. No, you don't want to He's operating under the, the remote control. It's a whole He's thing, operating yeah. under the big risk, big yeah. reward. Big policy. risk, big reward. Policy. Like if you can Someday. take the big risk. Yeah. Yeah. But they're they're all wonderful uh, yes, guys. To come back and to I the love record. I love them all to death. Yes, and they and it was band. so much fun to have them in the studio and get so it. So you guys done. rehearsed a couple times. You tracked a record. We and that's it. Like it's like once gone. or twice, and then it's you know done. we we also don't like to rehearse the band. Um, I like people to make decisions in the room and not think about things too far in advance, which is super rare. So. Yes, you guys are in a minority. In I mean, the we world. spend our whole lives rehearsing with other people, so I think yeah. that makes me not want to rehearse when it comes to my own I, music. So the own tunes so. are like, yeah, it'll be all right. It'll be good. I did. You know? I did a very famous pop <clears throat> tracking session once, and and uh, anyone who's a muso or a geek will get it. A kick out of this and I remember playing the bass on the take and the artist looks at me and they were like so uh sometimes before the notes you're playing you're playing like another almost note and I was like yeah yeah that's a that's a ghost note it's really common in rhythm section instruments you know you go dick gong and then you play the note and they go yeah we don't understand those if you're going to play the note, just play the note. Just play the one note. And if you want to talk about the ultimate oh in overthinking, it's like, you know, it's, it's like, that's, but that's that world. It's just different. It's so a different we, world. So to go it's back a- to your main question, what we've taken home from that, those experiences is just to do it our way. Yeah. You know, you want to, we're just trying to, we're trying to win on our terms. We're trying to make music we like, and we want to know if other people like it, and we want to just keep doing it. Yeah. And once that becomes your sort of your sort of vision, your horizon, everything gets a little easier. I did dainty fingers. Horizon. (laughs) Once that becomes your vision, though, quiet. This is poetic. Once that becomes your horizon and your vision, you'd be surprised how much else just snaps into place. Mm. You know, it's like you you make your yes or yes, and you know your no, and you do what you want, and it'll follow suit. You know, and, and things will be more on your terms or more like like you wanted it to be. So let's go back to the record before this one then. Was that on your terms? Did that do all of this stuff? The Whiskey on? Heart record yeah. before this? Yeah. I mean, totally. I think we were just let's green. look back at that one then. For me. What was different then about that record to this one now? I had just come off a very difficult time in my musical life. I had lost my voice. Um, and Just tell I, us about that a little bit. That's an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. So I was over singing like a mofo, um, <clears throat> like singing six to eight hours a day. And I've always been very meticulous with vocal technique um, and taking voice lessons and vocal health and things like that. But there are a lot of things that I didn't know that I think a lot of singers even now are still not aware of. Um, and so all my voice teachers were like, oh, just warm up and cool down. You'll be good to go. And the truth is just general overuse 
there is nothing you can fucking do about that at all. Yeah. If you overuse your voice, it doesn't matter if you warm up or cool down, you're screwing yourself. Um, so I oversang for like a solid five to six years of just maxing out my vocal use, which was great. Singing, I made a ton of money. Singing in church. Singing, singing in weddings. Singing in church, singing weddings. Rehearsals. Singing rehearsals, gigs. I had a regular gig at the time out in the Hamptons. So I was literally doing like, I would do like funerals during the week and other gigs and then like a church wedding on a Saturday, five o'clock mass, go out to the Hamptons and sing for three hours, sleep for two hours, drive home and do three more masses on a Sunday and then gigs and teaching all week. And talking is even more detrimental than singing. So thank so, you for your time right now in advance. But Well, things are great now. I mean, I have every, so you lost I've learned your voice. so much. And Ugh. as a voice teacher too, the amount that I've learned that I get to share with my kids is like, um, I'm very grateful for it now. But... Um, but I went through a whole bunch of doctors and, and no one had like the right scopes to see what was going on with my voice. And it turns out I have a really specialized type of scar tissue called the sulcus, which is the same kind of scar tissue that Adele and John Mayer and Sam Smith all have. And basically you get it from like singing until your vocal cords bleed and then singing even though they're bleeding and then they heal and then you sing again and you just do this over and over and over again until you form like what looks like a callus that has a pocket in it mm -hmm. and basically fuses the top muscle layer of your vocal cords to the bottom layer of your vocal cords. Um, it's the same kind of scar tissue that um, Julie Andrews has and ha still has. Julie Andrews is alive? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm a crazy person. She's still alive. So there's a 50% chance if they do surgery that it gets better and there's a 50% chance that it stays the same or you lose your voice entirely. And so I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that at all. So you did not do the surgery. I didn't do the surgery. Um, my vocal doctor, the second, third one, I actually ended up uh, working with who's amazing. Um, he was like, look, your voice isn't getting any worse and you've figured out ways to sing around what you have. And if you can adjust what you do career wise and the way you sing, he's like, I don't think it's worth you risking doing the surgery. And Good answer, and, yeah. Yeah, and it, I had a, you know, it was really tough for me because I was singing a lot of classical music at the time and I was using a lot of my upper register and I had pretty much lost that. And so I had just finished making a record with Greg Mayo at the time and was actually, that was contributing to my vocal loss, was trying to do these vocal recording sessions around having all these gigs and losing my voice at the same time. And I ended up being faced with this dilemma of like, well, I can't really sing the songs that I just finish tracking mm. I have a whole record worth of songs that I can't actually sing anymore because they're all in keys that I was being a jabroni and singing in like the key of E and belting out a high E and a high F sharp my chest voice which I shouldn't have been fucking doing anyways because it's bad for your voice yeah i.e. Adele like you can't do that all the time um so started hanging out with Chris and he introduced me to like, you know, Ryan Adams and David Gray and all these singers where it's about the song and not about the crazy notes you're singing um, and the amount of vocal riffs you're doing and stuff like that. And Bass players learn early. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, it just changed. It changed a lot of how it was raining and I still love that record I did with Greg and we keep jokingly now like talking about like remixing it. We're going to put it out. It's putting an it awesome out under record. like a different name. This record name. is not available it, to yeah, It's not, not available, available at all. At all. None of, not, well, maybe a couple songs are, but most of it's not out. Um, but I want to like do the Sia thing and like put a wig on and like, you know, make, make it, it a be new a whole character. other yeah. persona to, mm -hmm. to tour the record because it's such an amazing record. Um, and now that my voice is 
healthier. I think we could like change keys and like have some fun with it. But, um, so but so you I went on vocal rest for a long time though, right? I never actually your... went on vocal rest. And so that's the thing that like, I just couldn't afford to do it. When I lost my voice, I took two weeks off and I started going to see a, vo- a vocal therapist and I didn't really have great insurance at the time. And I went through my entire savings. Like I literally at one point had like $50 in my checking account. And from going to vocal coaches. From spending all this money stuff. on doctors yeah. and surgery and... Um, cause I ended up having like a bunch of steroid injections where they have to like knock you out and like stick a needle in your throat and inject steroids directly into your vocal cords and, um, really pleasant experience, really pleasant experience mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and, and going to expensive voice teachers cause I thought that was going to help and it didn't. Um, so I readjusted everything I was doing career wise and started playing more keyboards for people and, um, playing organ at church, started playing guitar, started playing guitar more and, and just, just focusing on the song and focusing on the songs. But monetarily I was able to shift what I was doing to, to help compensate for the amount of singing I was doing. And that then enabled me to sort of look at reworking another record. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote all these new tunes and my premise was, I need to write them in a way where I can sing them no matter what condition my voice is in. So I don't stress out about it. So you box yourself that, in. That whole yeah. record, by the way, uh, the first Whiskey Heart record, self-titled, right? Yes. Um, that whole record is <laughs> all, all your vocals are from the live tracking. Yeah. There's no overdubs. Because I didn't have your enough voice oh, to do it. Oh, my vocals are definitely overdubbed and <laughs> fixed. And <laughs> tuned, well, nudged. that was Chris's yeah. first time really singing backing vocals in a long time. And and it was a lot of fun. You know, like for me, it was very liberating because I hadn't... It was good to know that I could sing. And this in is this something... this new kind of way, this new character. My voice the, the, defined me as a person and as a musician. And I, and I actually had to start going to see like a therapist for a little while because it was so shocking to my core as a human being to not have this voice that I had always had to be able to speak with as a musician. I, I think so, that that when, when, when you and I grew very close in that time, Rebecca and I, I'm not talking to Paul right now. <laughs> um, when Rebecca and I grew very close in that time, uh, one of the things I was helping you with was was that the vocal range didn't matter as much as the honesty. And I've always been guilty of liking the the non singer singers. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, Randy Newman's like one of my guys. He's one of my favorite writers of all time, and it's mm-hmm. impossible to listen to Randy Newman and not think that it's real. Well, but there's a couple you know what of things. I mean? And of that course, was a yes. big that was a big yeah. part of that record was was bringing that to the forefront was yeah. just like let's make sure it's not about the notes and the honesty and and, and what these songs are yeah. about it's a super raw record yeah very similar to this one though right? they're, they're they're the yes. same they're, they're the, the same, same. the this... only the only thing we did differently on on this new one was was it was a lot to oversee the band for the two of us because we co-produced the first record yeah. it was a lot to oversee the band and figure out what we wanted to do and take on all of that while doing like a really heavily live tracked record. That's a lot in a day. Because we so, always live So Don Zalego yeah, um, produced the new record. And, and the best thing about Don is, is he likes a lot of the same music as us. We have some yeah. different approaches to getting to it. But he likes a lot of the same music as us. And he was just, he was our guy that could say yes or no. And he's a great producer too because... 
if we said yes or no, he heard us out. You know what I mean? It wasn't. It wasn't an argument, and it wasn't. No, like, well, I'm the he respected producer, you guys. Yeah. No, like, and he was. I mean, on the on the bass side, he was a blast to work for because he always wanted more from the bass player, which was fun for me because I'm used to like being real tame and just getting the job done and playing whole notes. And yeah, yeah, playing yeah. whole notes and away. keeping it simple. Yeah. And and he he really liked it. And some of the records that I really love personally all are are very playful from the rhythm section standpoint you know where there's a lot of stuff going on but it's subtle and you know everyone's playing together well but there's a little bit of conflict and a little rub here and there and it's some it provides for some momentum because that's you know that's what rock and roll is about what is don known for who else has he worked he's done a lot of stuff with jesse mallon don was also signed for his own music in the 90s Mm -hmm. um and he's also done some stuff recently with Hollis Brown. Um, but he's he's just kind of, you know, in that in that nineties world too, which is in a funny way something that we work well with. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean it it, 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 it harkens so. back to a time back where it's like you made a record. Driven. Yeah. Like you made a record. Tape, you didn't tape. real songs. Yeah, you, you didn't make a soundscape with someone singing over it. You yeah. know what I mean? It yeah. was like things are things are real. You know, and, and that's that's important for us is the real the reality and the clarity of a tune and like what you, when you hear something, it's something. It's not like there's no there's no sleight of hand. I also don't like doing a million vocal takes. Mm-hmm. Um, I like you know, I've worked really hard since getting my voice back to to make what I do be the best I do whenever I do it, and so I really enjoy that. He's not going to make me do, you know, 25 takes and then piece every word together. Like he, he really listens to what I do as a whole. And really at the end of the day, we only would comp from two, maybe three tracks. And it would be a lot of whole takes of things, which I love. I mean, you're very lucky as an amazing singer. You can do that. (laughs) I know. But I do think it again. We're gonna need about twenty-five <laughs> more takes. I think you get warmed up right around twenty-seven. The, you said the in an interesting way there. Yeah. Well, well, the thing is that record, the word record, is funny, and and you know we're back to like using that because vinyl's big again. But to make a record or make to, to make a recording, a record is is either a physical thing, or it's the taking down of an event that happened. It's a historical annotation. And it's funny that to me, because it's like, it's supposed to be, you know, what's the, it's the Ani DeFranco tune, a record of an event that happened in a space in time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's, it's supposed to be realistic. And I think that people are, are slowly coming around to wanting reality. I mean, reality TV is not an example, but People more and more want a concert-going experience, want a, a physical representation of the artist like on stage. They want to see it, you know, because music's becoming free on the, on the airwaves. You're getting so deep right now. Do you realize and, that? You're well, like super deep. Why are you stopping me? <laughs> so because of the, the, con, the, the, the reality of that is people yes. are going to create, they're going to want an experience. Exactly. Yeah. And... And it's important to remember that because that's why we do this, you know. Like we don't do it because we want to create a fake experience this right now. That's why we create a podcast. I'm here. 
I'm ready. You're here. It's the, uh, it's the, Are we starting this the thing now? Feminazi with, uh, armpit hair. You know what I mean? This is raw and uncut and real. Yeah. Whiskey heart in the building, dog. You know what I'm saying? What? But yeah. I agree with you. And obviously you guys are on the same page with that. You're not yeah. trying to get on the pop rocket ship or whatever. Pop Ro- rocket. Pop rocket. I've ridden a couple. That's not the goal. Dude, I did that. I mean, I was like being shopped to labels when I was 17, 18 years old. And it was like, be the next Nora Jones. And that didn't get me anywhere. So. But that's so funny too, because Nora Jones didn't want to be Nora Jones. No. And then ended up, and then the, and then the, the, the big business reaction is like, well, they have a Nora Jones. We need okay, a so and so. You know what I mean? Now it's like Adele. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh God, there was a time when like, when Mumford sold all those records where I had to wear a vest and I had to play upright bass on every gig whether or not it was appropriate sony's like well mumford sold this many copies it's like well because they weren't following your rules it's still well, going that's on, one of the yeah. things to like come back to what you were saying earlier chris with like you know you you get you write that hit song on your own and then they tell you you got to do it this way and it's like yeah. i you know i've i've spent 15 years trying to get back to the honesty in my songwriting when i was 17 years old before i was being shopped to major labels and they all told me well we like this song, so now you need to write with all these people and write all your songs like this. Like, that just taints everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know? And I've never felt more honest and, and more sure of the way I'm writing now, um, you know, since before that all happened. So. Here's a question for you guys. Do you find that... Well, you're both working with young songwriters and stuff like that. Does mm. that rob a little piece of your soul when you try to go and write your own no. songs? Or does that energize you to be more creative and create more? Uh, I'll go Since first because it's easy. I'd say <laughs> neither. 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 Rebecca, Rebecca, well, well, it's like... <laughs> you, here's, a, here's the thing that's like What's telling someone how to write a song is like giving someone relationship advice. Like there's going to be no benefit that comes of it. The best you can no do is benefit. you can show them a path. Well, because if you give someone relationship advice, they don't listen anyways. It's fine. No one wants to hear relationship advice. So you can lead by example and you can say, hey, there's this that's like this, but do your own thing anyways. And when you get to be of a certain age, you start to think like, well, that's not how I want to hear it, but... I'm not going to tell them that their thing is wrong. They have to go on their own journey, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so all you can do is show them the stuff that worked and hope that they hewn that so that they take away from that, you know, the good things. And that being said, like, like I don't, it doesn't take away from my ability to like music, to teach a kid about songwriting Mm -hmm. and it doesn't. And I don't know whether or not I benefit them. I just know that I can share this much information, and that's it. <laughs> that's you know it. I, mean? I don't agree. You're, well, you okay. maybe so. <laughs> function differently in this role as educators of songs and songwriters, right? I mean, what? Well, we also come from about? different perspectives. I mean, you're a session player primarily, who you know you write you write, but you're I looking at write. it. You're looking at a lot from a from a perspective of someone who plays a lot of other people's music and puts what you do on someone else's music and they have a vision and you're constantly dealing with this issue of putting your thing on their thing and them not knowing how they feel about it <laughs> and, sure. and them telling you how they feel yeah. about it because it's their song at the end of the day. Totally. Whereas with me, I think, you know, because what I do is, is 99%, you know, 
being a songwriter and then the rest of what I do career-wise is playing for other people, the, my perspective is that everyone needs to feel comfortable receiving criticism. And I don't care if you keep what I say or not, but you need to at least try it. Try it once. You need to try it. And That's you need to... Far from what I just said. I think it's a little far. <laughs> you need to try it. You need I to try it. I said you were going to just show open. them and they're going to take it or not. And that's it. But, but I make... But I sometimes, you know, say to them, like, look, you have... You haven't... They, ha- they know they're not super experienced all the time. And that push... I always say to myself, like, and I give what you do for me as an example, like, Chris doesn't like little mini words. Chris likes to get rid of the ends, ifs, buts, ors, oh babies, darlings, and all my writing. And, you know, these kids. No oh babies? No. Uh, it's a throwaway. They they that's some, what you do for people, right? Yeah, yeah, they need to have some of it taken out. And so I always give it as an, as an example that for me, sometimes it's really hard to get rid of those extra syllables because it's not how I'm feeling it. But after I live with it for a little while, it's something that I always feel, for the most part, ends up being better. And, and it's something that I had to learn. And so I try to teach them that, that, you know, you can't just say no, you have to try it and you have to live with it. And you have to really try to have an outer body experience and look at the song and not your relationship with the song as what guides your choices. Mm -hmm. And you don't feel that that like exhausts your writing. You're not like, not at all. I could talk about this person's song. No, I could talk about songs all day. I love it. I love talking about the kids' songs, and I love getting into what they're doing as artists, and I find it constantly invigorating and inspiring, and and it also reminds me that like I'm surrounded by so many different people who write songs, and even if someone compares me to someone else, we're so different. We're all so different as songwriters, mm-hmm. and and you shouldn't be comparing yourself. You should remember that you are 110% uniquely yours. And I think that's one thing that the industry constantly does to come back to me being compared to Nora Jones. It's like, don't put yourself in that box of like, well, this is who you are and you have to do this. Like, you're unique and you need to do what fuels your inspiration because that's going to make you the best artist that you can be and the most appealing to your fans and to labels and to management and to anybody else. So what's fueling you right now? What's really firing you? <laughs> I don't What's know. What's your fuel? Because I think of music as fuel, actually. Like, that's probably why I like really high energy music all the time. I but mean, I don't know if there's anything in particular that's really like mm-hmm. you're just like, this is it. I don't know. I always get off on phrasing. I know that sounds really silly, but like for me, it's about feeling the way I'm phrasing a lyric and when I'm singing and writing to constantly play with the way, the way the phrasing can change the feel. And I know for me with musicians and people in my band that that's an important thing for me that they don't get freaked out by the way that I phrase things and they stay very strong and confident in mm-hmm. their playing so that I can have the freedom to change the way I'm phrasing things based on how I want to emote a certain thing. And that gets me off and I find that very inspiring. So your phrasing is always liquid, you're saying? It can change? It's not always liquid, but it... It's always liquid. Okay. It's, it's always liquid. But that's the, that's the best part, too, because... Husband a, slash co-writer comes in. Well, so and, as a, and as a rhythm section player, you know what I mean? Like, the point is... The point is to nail stuff to the floor, man. Like, is to stand by your commitment to the song. And it's funny because everything I'm going to say is going to be as if I sang or wrote it. Stand by your commitment to the song to put the changes right where they belong to implore taste and to execute fearlessly. 
Yes. And that's... And that's what that's what's always guided my choosing of players, is players who play like that and, for my band. And that's what it is. If, if a singer is going to pick a different spot to put the lyric all the time, I'm going to in... Uh, I'm going to bolt it to the floor <laughs> so that they can. Yes. Yeah. You know what That's I mean? your job. That is... Yeah. Like, the same thing for me. Like, if a guitar player is going to, like, play too much or wank off, then I'm going to oh, play... Night. Then I'm going to play some funny stuff to be like, yeah, you're not the only one, bud. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, we can all do that, yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. So it's like... I get it, the, Joshua Redman. But the, you the, went to music school. Exactly. Yeah. So the thing is just to, like... But I don't sing more. I just phrase things exactly. in a crazy way. No, but my reaction so, as a rhythm section player yeah. is to do the is to do the same thing. Is just to, just to do something that keeps it right there. Because and you got and roll, Kenny, who's the perfect person to do yeah, that with. Well, rock and so. roll, rock and roll comes Kenny. from conflicts. That's what it's about. Like it's about like wow, that band is in that spot, and that singer is so free. You know what I mean? And I love that push and pull and the way that feels like I can't even it's it's I can't even describe like the way that that just feels to me to be able to really feel that back phrasing while everyone else is just there and the way that the audience reacts this is all indescribable this does not like, work on a podcast no I know <laughs> it's so, so hippy dippy but I fucking no, love cool. it it's, look you're getting it you're and shredding Kenny, let's on talk top about of the Kenny wave for yeah. a second like what a fucking rock you know, He's like, a rock. and his pocket—it's just so inspiring. And like the way that Chris and Kenny play together—I mean, you guys have been playing together for so long now. It's—it's it's just incredible the way you guys feel things together. And as a singer, I can. These just people are just gonna have to buy these records, be, so they don't you know, know what we're talking to about. With the rock and roll, the history of rock and roll comes. Tell from us stuff. about the history of rock and roll right now. Settle down. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> The hit, like rock and roll comes from That's conflict. Right. Like, like the whole Chuck Berry thing is a mixture of like a jazz drummer who's knows nothing but jazz, but is stuck with a rock guy, an early rock guy, straight eights versus swung eights. There's a there's fight in those tracks, and when you're making music on your computer, there's no way to create that fight. It needs to have the story of individuals coming together to make something work. Even when it's not supposed to work. But that's what gets us off on rock and roll. There's some people who yes. get off on it being like perfect. So totally. Perfect, right? And you I know? love Steely Dan too. <laughs> and I think Steely Dan is rad. You know what I mean? And, and, and I like Christopher Cross. Oh my God. <laughs> and that Cross stuff is, is perfect. Best. You know, but there's... We're getting off topic a little bit. But you know, but, well, but see, here's the thing <laughs> about it though okay. too. <laughs> if the human interaction is perfect, it still speaks to humans. If the machines interacting are perfect, who is that really speaking to? I'm not sure. The corporation. The maybe, man. Maybe. Yeah. The yeah. Man. Just, I'm just like, the I'm man. like, what? what is that? The corporatized the man. You'd never, You'd never plug in any of these apps and things that balance what makes music. You'd never, you could never create Hal, the, the, the computer machine who creates music. He'd never spit out a Chuck Berry song. You know what I mean? Yet the entire thing we do is based on that. Yeah. We're not here without that. So conflict and working things out and tolerance and working with each other as human beings, that's what it's about. That's how a rhythm section, that's how bass and drums play together. That's how Rebecca and I work through all of our differences to finish us <laughs> off. 
to just rock it out, to just yeah. go and turn up the guitar uh, loud. That's how we finish the sound check where we're fighting over who's louder than who in the monitor <laughs> and then still get a gig done. It's like it's that's still more me in the monitor than you want all the time. Always. Always. <laughs> Singer always wins, man. Yeah, they do. Always wins. I always say that. I always and say this. Always like, wins. singers Sorry, guys. behind them all the way. <laughs> you have to be. Yep. Do you say that phrase when you're backing people up now, too? No. Well, <laughs> you got to remember. You got to remember. No, it goes. No. It goes either way. Behind. Well, behind them all the way. When I'm singing backing vocals on a gig, I can do the whole gig and not need to hear my vocal at all. That's what I learned from being on tour with a pop artist for the whole year. There were so many backing vocals I was singing along with. Like I could actually do my whole gig and not even hear my keyboards, which I've actually done before. When we played live on Ellen, I could only hear the click and the kick drum in my ears. In your ears. And the lead not vocal. even the lead vocal. Oh, you did I get had the lead, lead vocal. vocal. I didn't have any of my keyboards in my, in my ears, and I didn't have any of my backing vocals in my ears at all. And I played live on Ellen. Because the show just had to go on. Just had there to was go. Nothing there was you could do. But I knew my part that well, and you know it's not really making music. Why didn't they have this all dialed in? <laughs> well, well, that's a long that's story. A, that's that a we whole probably story. shouldn't get story. into. It's okay. And you don't so. you don't get to shout when you're when you're a couple people down the totem pole. You don't get to no. shout monitor changes in those situations. <laughs> Two minutes before they're like, time and it ready? Is. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah. So. Oh. yeah. I mean, we we did whole tours that year. Where I, I would never say anything. I'd be like, I can, I know I can get. And this you guys job are both done. wearing ears at this. We're point both wearing ears at that point. That, and those are in ear monitors. Yeah. Do you keep in school? We would them? have just enough of of what we needed to get by sometimes, and I think the Ellen one for me was the worst. That was one a, I ever did. That was the the hardest. That sound check didn't make any sense to me, but that's how it happened. Yeah. Anyways, these are about stories this. of the road. They're good stories. I talked about this with our mutual friend Greg Mayo and. I was talking about how he is one of the best visual communicators he of is. music. Mm-hmm. Right? He can give you yeah. a look, and somehow everybody knows exactly what he means or is saying, right? Just with a look. <laughs> it's very true. Have you guys developed this whole visual? You must have your own whole yeah. catalog of looks that you're communicating. Well, a novel in one glance of like, oh, Kenny just did that drum fill, or Todd's. Really high, or <laughs> is that really well, what Teddy's playing? It comes back like, to community. Though. Yeah, it I mean, but talking about Greg for a second, like him and I have been singing together since we were twelve. Since floppy disks were happening, apparently. Yes, since floppy disks were happening. That was a great post on the social media. Yes. <laughs> and Greg and I speak a vocal harmony language that is very difficult to explain, where we know where the other is going to go without having to say it and we can just do instant harmonies yeah behind another singer or specifically when you're it doesn't matter like we can just do any instant thing that needs to happen because you probably learned maybe together right yeah We'd sing. We've sung so much, so long together. It's but, difficult to get twelve year olds to harmonize. So, and yeah. he also, you know, we also do those visual things where, like, I can tell if he's going to go up or if he's going to go down, and we can do the same thing, you know, for each other with the harmonies. But I think for you and I, it ends up being like it's a lot of inside joke exchanges while we're playing. Like, we kind of can make eye contact to each other when someone does something wrong or ridiculous, because um, I know Chris heard it. And that was like, I think for me, the beginning of our relationship, like on the Mayo Band, like I would kind of hear you do something really rowdy and I would kind of make, you know, make eye contact with you. And then, you know, someone would fuck up and we'd kind of look at each other and, 
and make a face a little bit like while we're playing and Greg Greg and I, (laughs) you and I and Greg and I have that very much as well. It's just time spent. Yeah. And Greg and I have this one that we do where, where we shake our head. No, right before we know someone's going to make a four mistake. Yeah. And we look right at each other and we go, no. And then sure enough, someone in the band makes a four mistake. The, the, the pleasure of working with people like Rebecca and Greg and Martin Sexton and Keisha and, and you Kenny Shaw and, and you got and you and and some of the Friends, people people you have history with yeah. Right? yeah people you have history with but also like we have history but we have a very lucky history in this community of musicians because these are we're very lucky to be around people who hear they really hear and they're listening you know yeah that's like a great they're way to listening put it. for things they're open to what's going on on stage other than them. And they react to that. And, you know, I keep coming back That's to it over and over again. That's real rock and roll, right? That's real rock and roll. That doesn't happen community. in the computer, yeah. yeah. You know, like when you're out with a pop act and you're playing on ears and there's a click track in your ears every night. And, and even for us, I mean, sometimes there was a slate which would even tell you what's coming up next in the song. And... That man, does that drag the fun out of it? Like, it's not. Tell us what a slate is. A slate is like. Well, it's click and slate a, usually go hands in hand. Yeah, click hand and slate. Hand. So, so, so if, you're, if you're on like a, a pop gig, thing? you're playing to tracks and there's backing tracks. So, you normally get a count off, and, and the count off usually contains the title of the song and the key of the song. So, it's a computer voice that says. Yeah. Don't this song now. Yeah. One, two, three, four. Yeah. And then sometimes if you're working with an artist who needs songs in multiple keys because they wrote it in a key that was too high for them initially and need to lower the key. They lowered a little then bit. Then they go, this song in this key. One, two, yeah. three, four. So when you watch those pop acts on TV, some of them, they're all, some of them are to slates and clicks and tracks, mm-hmm. which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the thing is just that like, you know, you get more and more slates when the gig gets bigger and bigger because all of a sudden it's a big financial risk. Bridge. So and so missed three, the bridge of four. a song. And when you're in New Outro, York two, three, yeah, when you're four. a New York musician and you're you're consuming six hours of music and spitting it out at least a week. Yeah. You know what I mean? On various gigs around town. That stuff's a nuisance. What I laughed about the most was that like when I was on those pop gigs, if I had a family event, which in that world is frowned upon that you ever miss anything, you'd have a family event, you couldn't maybe do a gig. They were always like, well, who are we going to get to sub this? And I'm thinking like, the Anybody. whole thing tells yeah. you the key <laughs> in the slate. And then, and then you know, Come of course, on. they would pick a sub based on people they know when they should have just asked to improvise the gig. Way, yeah. Whom we call haircuts. They'd get a haircut yeah. for the sub. And then you're going like, well, and then they say, well, I didn't really do the job. And I was like, at which point it said which key they were in. They're really it pretty told and them they have great when hair. the chorus was happening, told them, them when the bridge was happening. And it's yeah. like, how do you not get that done? But back to the part that's that's positive is like in, in our circle of friends, which I'm very happy to have, everyone listens and hears each other and entire things can turn on a dime with a glance. And that's really the way it's supposed yeah. to be. We've just, we, lo- we lose sight of that when we get into the other world. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to... Tie this all in, though, right? Yeah. That totally. was poetic, Chris, right? Because oh, thank you. We're carrying Very on this tradition. Sometimes I do feel like a dinosaur, like that you're like, oh. well, 
crotchety old man. I just like guitar songs, man. I, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. know. You try, I got this computer, you're trying all this stuff, and you're like, I can't do this. My soul, my heart is not in that. And you guys are we, thankfully carrying on this, right? Where you're, yeah. where you're leading it, right? I mean, I think there's a world, I think there's a world for everything. And I, I, for me, I've done a lot of different styles of music in my life. I've done like a hard rock band and I made an electronica record before that was the hip thing to do. And, you know, I, I think you need to Yeah, you've done a lot. And then you did the Nora Jones soft. I did the Nora Jones light soft FM light joint. FM thing. And, you know, I. And then I, you have a record apparently that's just on the shelf. I have a record that's on the shelf. What style is that one? It's. Soul? That's like a gritty. That's back it's when like, like when the R and B thing was happening, but nobody was calling it throwback R and B yet. Yeah, you but know, it's like, a little Amy more Winehouse. soul. It's not yeah. so Amy Winehouse ish. No. It's kind of for me the Bow rich. Tally. Easy, bud. Easy, bud. Paul's, like Paul's falling soul. asleep. I don't know. It's. I don't know. I guess my point is, you just you you're gonna make the best music you make if you just stay true to what you want to do musically. And I don't see anything wrong with anyone making music they they want to make but I think to come back to what we were saying before you should just try to get closer to making the music you really want to make that you don't the best making co-write with with you know somebody just because you think it's going to be successful <laughs> like make the yeah. music you want to make you know and you guys are doing that right I feel like we've yeah. I'm I am doing yeah. exactly what I want to be doing I'm so happy with with my teaching and with you know, even with my students, it's like I, I kind of mm. reached a point where I, I don't take on students unless they really want to be doing music and they feel passionate about it and they inspire me as a teacher to want to teach them. I don't just take kids anymore that mommy and daddy wants to max out their schedule and make them play an instrument. It's not oh, what I do. Dark, so dark teachings. Yeah. It's, it's all got to be inspirational and feed into what you do as an artist and that's what's going to make you make the best art. So... That's my story. <laughs> I still tell all my kids, Polly, when I'm at, at Purchase about how you and I transferred in together, Mr. Mr. Uh, Turtleneck, classical guitar player there. Paul used to wear all black and play only nylon string guitar. Yep. Long nails, yep. glasses, yep. academia. I still vividly remember those days. And uh, the first time you came in with lipstick on my booty to uh, Ted Piltzecker's class. And Paul co-wrote a song. Did you co-write that with someone? With Bone? Or is that just you? Everything's just with Bone. It has to be with Bone. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like... Um, it's called Lipstick on My Booty. And if you're looking for a good time... But like, man, just being around that was like super inspirational. I was like, this dude is bringing in a song called Lipstick on My Booty. Like... Autobiography. There's no Could have been about your derriere, you know what I mean? You don't even know. I'm bringing this to a class. Maybe, like, you're like, what? <laughs> Paul, in my mind, it was about mine. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. I mean, way to turn that around on me. I like that. Secret famous. You know, <sighs> secret famous right there. Secret famous, there's three people. What other stories can we tell? I think, I mean, we're probably in an hour and a half. I know. How long you we, want no, to there's, there's, there's no time limit to it. What? Why don't we talk about your guys' wind-down routine? I always like that. Like The wind-down routine? Like, I feel like everybody has a no, because I know you guys, I feel like you guys each have your own things. We all do, right? Like, there's a there's a podcast I listen to of our dear friend. I'm not going to say this person's name, but the guy was like, so what do you do after your gig to wind down? And he was like, uh, and in the whole time in his head, he was like, probably like smoke weed, smoke weed, 
smoke weed, but he didn't say that. He's like, uh, watch some movies. You're like, you don't do <laughs> I don't know. Do you yeah. guys have, what's we your are, wind down, right? Because you guys big, are running around. I mean, we talk about that, thousands of gigs. We live out of the city, so there's always a commute involved. You know, or when we're on the road, it's the same thing. There's always some sort of travel involved, right? Like it's you not live, video games. Is that you is what you're trying to no. not say? No. You don't live no. where you where you gig. So for for me, and I think it's pretty similar for Rebecca. A lot of the time, it's just like you get home, whether home is like the hotel room or not. It's just a drink or two and some casual conversation, because you can't. I don't think you can go right to bed. You know, you're we're in peak operating status at like yeah. 10 p.m. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like that's when my brain is brain engaged, can process the chord changes and whatever is getting thrown at me. And you know, so it's a lot of the time. It's just to come home, just have one, maybe a little bit of pointless TV. We've been rewatching Game of yeah. Thrones. Rewatching Game of Thrones. Yeah, rewatching Game of Thrones. It's easier to follow all the hair colors in the families if you rewatch it. Sometimes time, a little so weed is involved. If we're going to be honest, sure. to not yeah. talk about watching movies. Yeah. Um, it's very therapeutic for my voice. Um, so my voice is super tired. It's relaxes everything a little bit. Well, it's one of the best natural anti-inflammatories. So, you know, not the smoking aspect of it, but um, if you do it the healthier way, um, it's better for me than taking Motrin to kind of combat any swelling issues I might mm-hmm. have with my vocal cords. So, um, so that helps. The scotch yeah. helps. <laughs> That's what I drink. Tequila. <laughs> Christmas tequila, tequila, tequila and the cats. Full yeah. tequila phase. I've been going full through a year-long phase. tequila cleanse. Tuesdays after we finish our teaching week is uh, Lamanda's and Wine Night. So this podcast is being yeah. sponsored is, by Red Wine and Lamanda's Pizza. Cheers to you guys. Um, Cheers. Which is a favorite of a lot of Westchester musicians. Um, Just, some still with us, some not. Yeah. So this combination. There's a deceased Westchester musician who did this as well. Uh, well, well, who ate at Lamanda's, both Greg's father um, and T Bone. T Bone. T Bone woke. They would go there together, or separately? I think so. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, yeah. back in the day, that back was like day. there's a whole Daryl's house where they go to. They Lamanda's. go to Lamanda's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. And then they order. There's the a pie that's pie. not on the menu. The garlic pie. And that was T-Bone's favorite pie, which we did not get. He was a great bass player, and uh, we just missed him as far as socially, because he had played on Evan Watson's record, which was one of the first groups Rebecca and I were in together. And uh, I was always a big fan of his bass playing. And we were supposed to hang out. It was in the cards, and, you know, hit some health issues. Should we go back even further into the Curry Band? Do you want to step into that right now? Oh, God. I mean, it's the only time I've ever rehearsed an entire shop. It was fine by me. That was a lot of fun. I think it's where I really got to re-know you, Paul, in life. In the curry band? In the curry band. Um, It was a great gig for me because I hadn't really played keys on a gig since Evan's gig. Um, So getting to do that was really fun. It was a great hang. Yeah. Sure. It was kind of like the best hang ever. Mm, That was a really fun band. Yeah. And yeah. I actually told the story. We're telling Greg's stories. I was telling a story. Last night, Rachel was telling that during the uh, the last Petty Tune last night that Tony was watching the Yankees game. Well, we're doing American Girl, <laughs> right? Like That's great. <laughs> I've been like, there so like, many Hi. times. He's totally watching the Yankees game. This like whole thing is going on. And 
I always will never forget when Greg did keys in that band and he was watching the Yankees game too. Not even playing the music, man. Just like just watch the Yankees game. So I mean, it felt all, like that. I literally we've all been there. Super inside story. Yeah. My ADD, it's like I've done so many gigs where I'm just staring at the TV in the back of the room. <laughs> yeah. I've done so many. I mean the Red Lion was like, you know, the best for that because you'd play and the TV'd be on at the bar and be a little hard to not pay too close attention look man to they're not all madison square garden <laughs> that was actually sure. one of the worst sounding gigs i think i've ever done in my life was the theater at madison square garden that room sounded like ass rebecca just stepped it down from madison square garden to theater at madison to the theater square that room sounded garden. so like- bad but let's get back to more old school stories so I vividly remember the first time that I had seen you play after college and I came to see the thing at Kenny's Castaways and it was the first time I got to meet Rob Paulings. Oh yeah. And I walked in with my boyfriend at the time and I went to use the bathroom and you followed me into the bathroom while I was while you were playing guitar uh, to play a guitar solo in the bathroom. That in the I was ladies' in. bathroom, which is directly yeah. next to the stage. It's directly next yes. to the stage. And then I came out of the ladies' bathroom and sat back down and uh, Paulings took a bass solo where he proceeded to literally take his bass off and throw it on the ground at the end of the solo. Bass defeation, yes. Yeah. So, Classic move. I mean, you know, midnight, 1 p.m., <laughs> Bleecker Street, there's certain things that have to be done, right? 1 a.m., sorry. I'm That's on right. the other schedule, I guess. Yeah. Paul, just so you know, I guess, dear, we were meant to be because Paulo, Paul also followed me into the bathroom once. At okay, good. <laughs> I think I was using the men's Amazing. bathroom. I don't know. It could have been the women's. Who knows? It's very amazing. Well, as a New York musician, you have to get your Bleecker Street stripes. You know what I'm I mean? Like super, you guys did. Uh, I did yeah, we did I'm together, super you glad know. to have been part of that scene before yes. everything yes. got turned into a bank or an eatery. You know what I mean? It's, and now it's happening in the Lower East Side. They're going to push them out there too. But the cool thing about the Bleecker Street thing was there were some old timers there that were really worth it. You know what I mean? You would, you would end up mixed in with musicians 10 years, 20 years older than you, 30 Which years older. Which you still older get to you. play with for time to time, but I think it happened a lot more often well, we're, we're, back then. We're 15 years older now, you yeah? know? Well, even, yeah. but that like was this, older than uh, us. Like, is, imagine, but we are the same age that our peers were when we were kids going out to clubs. And, and imagine, I imagine like my college kids coming to get to see me play and that doesn't happen because there isn't that safe scene, you know? Like I was hanging out on Bleecker Street and like, you know, jamming and and playing gigs with like guys that I still get to play some gigs with like Mike Viseglia and Doug Yole and and Joe Bonadio for a little while. And and, Conrad Korsh was always around. Yeah, and and Dan, Dan Weiss. Dan Weiss. Who we don't see that much anymore. You know, Malcolm. Ivan Bodley. Yeah, like there, there's some yeah, just amazing that, yeah. You know, I, yeah, Ivan's players. the best, I remember once that we... When there we were people played, you meet in front of the bitter end when it was like... Yeah, because yeah, everyone used to hang out. Seven, out in the front. It was just like, yeah. I remember, just, I remember doing a gig with you, Rebecca, early on um, with your project, and we were after... Conrad Korsh and I just had remembered because Bass Player Magazine had just written up Conrad for getting the Rod Stewart gig. Nice. And uh, and I walk on stage and I was like, "Hey man," and he was like, "What's your name?" And I was like, "Not Conrad Korsh." And he looked at me <laughs> and started laughing. And then and That's then we amazing. talked for a few minutes and it was just a riot to have that interaction. Sure. You know, and I think I even probably said some like incriminating things. He liked my gig bag, and I was like, "My mom got it for me." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> But and, that was one of the awesome was, you know, things. But that yeah. was the thing about it. 
But Kenny, like to, you know, talk about, you know, like the scene down there. And I know that we all kind of shifted locations after a while, but you know, you got it, you go where the scene ends up shifting to you because that's where people are going to come out and see you. But before that shift, I think, you know, the red line and Kenny's castaways, but then the bitter end sort of acted as like the pinnacle of where everybody would end up. And Kenny Gorka, um, cause we would all be there during the week hanging out on things, you know, work gigging on the weekend, hanging on on the weekdays and doing shitty gigs. But Kenny would let everybody in. Like once he got to know you, he'd let you You come in and hang Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't charge you at the door and he'd buy you a drink. That might have been like for me, one of like the top 10 New York moments. It's like the, I can walk into the bitter end free of charge. Yeah. And that means you And Kenny's going to buy me a shot and, you know, I'm just going to get to hang out and see this show and hang with my musician friends. And and that open door policy that they had there, you know, it just made they you feel. Yeah, yeah and it made you feel like you could always go there and see someone you knew and, and socialize and be a part of a scene. And they, they helped keep that scene going. Um, you know, Kelly was the same thing. Like, I yeah. always had oh, a friend in, in Kelly and... Um, even the bouncer at the red line, whose name I don't know, who's not there anymore, and he always asked me for ID. I played there every Tuesday for two. But years. he was still pretty nice. You <laughs> the know? new guy, the, the guy at the red line. The funny oh, thing the for me is, like, <laughs> two years playing well, every then, Tuesday. He's like, "Got ID, buddy," and I was just like, "Jesus, guy, I'm here <laughs> every do, Tuesday. You know me. Do I need to wear the same outfit?" Yeah. But you know, looking at looking at Rockwood, it's like I think we had that for a couple of years. Like we knew all the wait staff. And that's and, Rockwood Music Hall on the Lower East Side. Ken Rockwood is definitely that way, but he's not there as often, at least around yeah. and about as he used to be. Um, but a lot of those people are gone, and a lot of the scene is is really gone. And I think the only thing that's that I love that's the same is the. Freaking bouncers. Yeah. They're Rockwood, my, Rockwood's like, they're Rockwood's the like, best. A, Rockwood now, every time I go, it's like a 10 year class reunion. Yeah. It's like you walk into the same building, right? You walk into the same building, <laughs> and all of the adults are the same people. Like the principal's yeah. still there, the secretary, yeah. but then the entire graduating class is just a whole other crew of teenagers. Yeah. yeah like you'll see a couple scene. of guys back in somebody that you know. But you know all the door guys, and like you can just hang out and shoot the shit for hours with them, and they're just the best. Yeah. And that kind of family for me is what, what kind of keeps that stuff alive. You know, like knowing I can go down and and see a show and know somebody. I I vividly remember the first time I was in the Lower East Side, when things started really changing with the scene, um, when there really started to not be a scene. And I remember going to Rockwood and not knowing anybody. And it was the first time that I was ever down in that neighborhood. And I didn't know anybody playing at any of the venues in the neighborhood. And I was like, what's going on right now? That's when we're getting too old. No, I don't think it has well, anything. I don't think it has anything to do with yeah, old, that, though. That's my point is I think there isn't a scene anymore. And I think even when we were younger, like that, the Lower East Side had a scene. And I look at my students now, and I'll, all I keep talking to them about is make a scene because that's what's going to get people out to your shows initially, and it's going to give you the chance to to create new music and 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 not play to an empty room and feel uninspired, you know? Mm-hmm. And because they don't have that, they don't. They have haven't it. found it yet. Well, maybe it's here in Westchester, guys. You're here. 
No. A bunch of people I've there been last playing bar night. gigs in Westchester since I was like 15 years old. And it's it's all old band bands. Like my uncles are really cool, but it's last. the same people and they want to play with the same people and they don't want to play with anybody else and it's lame sauce. Well, the other the other thing about it too is like <laughs> last night was a lot of fun. We raised a lot of money. We sang it that all those petty tunes and just had a good time. But there was such a significant portion of the bar that felt like I mean, you're you're there on their day off. Yeah, they're not there because you're playing. Does that yeah. make sense? Like no, that's that's what that felt like. And <clears throat> in, in you know, granted, we were enough musicians, and it was a wonderful event. All the musicians were truly incredible. Uh, but you know, you get to that point where it's like you're in this bar, and it's whoever's in the bar. It's their day off more than it's your performance. Of course. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's when you watch the Yankees game. You're checking out the Yankees game. <laughs> I don't like watching sports. And by the way, so. you know, hey kids, if you're no, good enough, everybody. if you're good enough to carry the gig and watch the Yankees game, no, exactly. you're on it's your way. It's testament to how well he when knows I how teach to play. Then you two will laugh at the girls, slates. So. When I teach my studio charting class, one of the things I always say is, not that I'm condoning underage drinking or drinking on a gig in general, but you need to write these charts out so that you can be shit face and still not screw up the music. That's true. That's how you have to write these that's charts you, all the time. Yeah, that's how you know you made it, yeah. That also goes for being able to watch the Yankee game and the same concept, forgetting yeah. where you might be in the chart but being able to look down and not be lost. That skill will also get you wedding work. Thus Tons of gigs. Bills. Tons of gigs. All the gigs. Anyways, we just talked uh, shit face drinking and wedding work. <laughs> still cool. Still uh, cool stuff. Uh, still very cool stuff. No, it's it, just work. Ugh, it's part a, of it's work, part of it's love. It's all the balance in that. What else do you want to ask us, Polly? That's good. We're good. I, 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 that's a long haul. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and if anyone makes it this far, <laughs> This is the on deep you. cuts right now. Okay. I will say that you you speak the truth, though. When you look back on those Bleecker Street hangs, can you remember when it was the Mayo Band with all of us? Playing yeah. after the Dion band, like every which played s- after Pete and Jay. Yeah, what? Like, so yeah. that still has to be going on. The scene has shifted. The scene is moving. It's I don't, not. It's, it's not, not as. It's like a Mobius. It's not thing. going yeah, on I mean, anymore. We, we'll have to save it but, for part two. But I mean, you know, it's a it's a thing where I think the industry's changed so much that you can't expect the same. You know, I think that's exactly it. But here, here we are in the but flesh. But we're opening for musicians. an artist who has a scene of people that goes to shows, and I'm so excited about it because they have a scene, and it's a, it's a throwback, and it's going to. It's feel not awesome. in New York, right? And they're not. All, they're not. You're not even in doing York, any gigs in New York, Which actually brings right? another really interesting point up. Not that we should keep talking on this very long podcast, but. One of the things that we've noticed from touring is once you get out of New York and L.A. and Nashville, people love going to see live music. I think everyone, yeah. you know, when we play shows in New York um, and L.A. and especially in Nashville, everyone is very, like, how would you explain it, Hutton? Truthfully, if you're not doing it out of town, you're not doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to swallow You were just there. That you pill. remember, yeah. It's hard to swallow that pill because we yeah. feel like these cities and these urban centers are such a big part of us. But, but if you're yeah. not taking what you do out of New York, you're literally not doing it for the populace. Like once you get out of New York, just that I, I still remember like playing my first show 
like in Chicago and just the way that people just loved us coming to play music. And it, it wasn't necessarily a lot of people, but it was a different, it was a different reaction than I'd ever gotten to playing the bitter end or Rockwood. It was a different level of interest and a different level of enthusiasm. That was so amazing. Yeah. They're not used to you. Total boss is getting on stage and crushing. Well, not them. that. I just think it's That's definitely part of it, though. Yeah, I guess well, I don't just, know. But it's, there's good music live, everywhere, of course. But we live in a very saturated environment in New York, and you know, it's it's you, we should we should bring it other places. That's all. All right, plan. There you go. Tour. Tour. Tour, tour. on the new record, you guys. Tour Welcome to the tour. Thanks for having us, Polly. Thank you guys. Thank you, Polly. All right, we'll see you soon. Game on.